This is a Federal News Network podcast. Ukraine and keeping aid flowing to that country, it's one of the few areas of bipartisan agreement on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers return this week, and that's at the top of the agenda. We get more now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, am I right? That's going to be top of the agenda? Absolutely. This will be no doubt the immediate focus of Congress this week as the Senate and House return from their two-week break. The Biden administration indicated last week that the original package of $14 billion that Congress approved is starting to get close to running out, believe it or not. You also had the Ukrainian prime minister meeting with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and congressional leaders last week, thanking the U.S. for what's already been approved, but pointing out that Ukraine still has large needs related to the military, humanitarian aid, and sustaining its own economy. So while the president announced more than a billion dollars in assistance last week, $800 million for military, another $500 million related to the economy, this is going to definitely be a top priority for lawmakers. And both Republicans and Democrats, as you indicated, are fully on board saying the flow of military weapons, including ammunition, heavy artillery, javelins, stingers, drones, that all needs to keep coming to give Ukraine the tools it needs to keep fending off the Russians. And one of the commentators on one of the cable networks, I forget which one or who, but said something interesting. And one is that in the new region in which the intense fighting is happening, the United States have the long supply chain and Russia has the short distances involved. And that's a reversal of what it was earlier in the war. Right. That's been an undercurrent of a lot of discussion here on Capitol Hill, especially people who serve on the uh, armed services committees. You have literally all the way from the west, you know, out toward Lviv and the eastern front of the U.S. uh, NATO uh, allies. They have to move all of that equipment all the way across the country beyond Kiev, all the way down to the Donbass region. That is a huge logistical challenge uh, for NATO, for the United States, and of course for Ukraine. And as you point out, the Russians just have a short distance on the other side. They are further to the east, obviously, to get down to Donbass. So there's a lot of discussion about actually getting this military equipment across the country. And uh, some of the people have also talked about the fact that, is there concerns that the military equipment that the U.S. sends could somehow get in the wrong hands and get in the hands of the Russians. Of course, that's happened in the past in various military conflicts. So members of Congress are watching that as well. So there's an attempt to try to make sure that this equipment gets to where it's supposed to go. Also, the White House announced last week that it had uh, appointed a retired three-star general, Army Lieutenant General Terry Wolf, to help coordinate all of this influx of military assistance to Ukraine, because that's, again, a big concern. Interesting. But I guess in Congress, there is bipartisan feeling that this is really important to the American public, which maintains a high degree of outrage over what's going on. Right. Even though there's obviously a lot of concern with inflation and the amount of money being spent by Congress, this is one area where Republicans and Democrats have really come together. However, there is a lot of complication related to this funding. Uh, If I can just move ahead to The COVID funding, which, as you know, has not been approved, the Senate is still trying to get a $10 billion agreement on that package. And this is where things get complicated. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has indicated he wants Ukraine aid and COVID funding to be linked together. That could be a real problem. Despite a tentative agreement earlier on COVID, Republicans have a lot of reservations about another massive COVID package. And they say they won't vote for COVID unless they get a vote on an amendment to block the Biden administration's plan to drop Title 42, 
restrictions on migrants. So all of this is about to smash in together, and we'll have to see how it's going to be sorted out if they are able to extricate, if you will, the Ukraine military aid, which I have a suspicion will will happen because there is so much pressure on lawmakers to get that money out that they don't want it stuck over the next few weeks or months. Sort of like a big political Rubik's Cube. Exactly. And there's a lot of moving cubes. And a lot of these people don't know quite how to fix that Rubik's Cube or get it to where it's supposed to be. We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And the other big topic is the IRS, which is struggling through the post-filing season processing. And we all know leftover paper responses from last year and a bunch of new paper coming in this year, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a big ask from the Biden administration to to help the IRS. But that's not going exactly swimmingly either on the Hill. No, it really isn't. Republicans and Democrats do agree the agency is a mess, but they do not agree on whether it should get the $80 billion the president wants for the agency. I followed this House hearing last week that was led by Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly. As you are well aware, he has had a keen interest in this as the chair of the Government Operations Subcommittee. And this hearing just laid out all of the issues that are facing the IRS right now. IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick, as he has in the past, has indicated this agency does have a lot of challenges. It has a, a huge problem with hiring. It has a huge problem with trying to get all of this computer equipment that goes back to the 1970s updated. Uh, but Republicans uh, indicated that they are not ready to spend this kind of money, even though they acknowledge there are problems, uh, including the ranking GOP member of that subcommittee, Jody Heiss, who just said, we've got to look at ways to get the agency more efficient. But just to give Uh, people an idea of some of the challenges that the IRS and taxpayers face. At one point during this hearing, Charles Reddick noted that during the pandemic, and this was a while ago, but at one point the IRS had more than 20 million pieces of mail that had never even been opened. And obviously, millions of taxpayers still file by paper, even though the vast majority do it uh, over computers. And that paper backlog, as you well know, and Federal News Network has pointed out over the years, has really just stacked up, literally, uh, for the agency. So they're still trying to figure out exactly what they can do. Now, Reddick does say they have made some major progress, and they are getting closer to a real-time response from week to week and month to month, but there are still just so many problems within the IRS. And another question I wanted to ask you about, and this is kind of comical, but kind of not, and I think last week on Wednesday evening you were on Capitol Hill. I was at Nationals Park watching the parachutists from the Army's Golden Knights come down. You were at the place where they were evacuating because of a seemingly rogue aircraft, and is Congress going to find out even though they weren't there, but their staffers all had to evacuate. What the heck happened here? Yeah, isn't it interesting that we were both in this these key points inside the Capitol? It was a little after 6.30 that evening, and we got the massive sounds of buzzers and uh, screeching in here that goes off with everybody being told to flood out of the Capitol. Those that were here, as you point out, there were fortunately not that many people here, but uh, U.S. Capitol Police made it very clear you had to get out of here immediately. Uh, Quickly, it became clear that this was going to be something that uh, was not a threat. In fact, I happened to look up into the sky and I actually saw that plane that you saw over the stadium, but I saw it a short distance away as people were trying to figure it out. But right now, uh, a growing number of House lawmakers are looking to start an investigation into what 
what kind of problems with this communication snafu occurred, especially when you consider that January 6th wasn't that long ago. Uh, People just can't believe that this would happen at this point. The FAA has effectively acknowledged that the problem was on its end. Uh, The Army has said it went through all the protocols. The U.S. Capitol Police said they were not notified. So first we'll start with the FAA's internal investigation and we'll see whether or not that satisfies lawmakers. If it doesn't, then it is potential that there could be a hearing on this. Yeah, interesting because it was the comical sense was the military leaders from all the four major branches were there throwing out ceremonial pitches, all of the leaders for the National Capital Region, for the Navy, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Air Force. And you wonder which one of them should have made the call, if any of them. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's almost incomprehensible that this could happen after January 6th, frankly, because there's been so much attention, as you well know, about getting communication, clear lines of communication between everybody related to this. And this is not something that just happened, you know, a a couple of days ahead. I mean, as you know, these are planned months in advance and military appreciation night, I mean, Everybody knew, all the military branches knew that this was going to happen. So the idea that this caused this panic for just, granted, only about less than half an hour still is pretty amazing to a lot of lawmakers here who are still scratching their heads about this. And topped off with an 11-2 to loss by the Nationals (laughs) in the hands of the Diamondbacks. Cherry on top, right? (laughs) WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 